Good morning. My name is Ryan Chase, and I'm another one of the elders here. And it's good to be together on the Lord's Day, good to be in God's Word. I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. And as you turn there, I can invite you to take sides. You don't have to do this physically or literally, but in your mind, Coke or Pepsi? Ford or Chevy? You don't have to say it out loud. That's okay. (laughs) Some people are enthusiastic. McDonald's or Burger King? iPhone or Android? Montessori wooden toys for your kids or plastic toys? Rescue dog or breeder? Life is full of choices at every turn. and Sometimes the stakes are pretty low, like chocolate or vanilla. Not much at stake there. Other choices seem pretty weighty, like epidural or natural birth. Vaccine or no vaccine. Choices inevitably lead to taking sides, and sides usually lead to really strong loyalties and really fierce rivalries, as one guy on the internet described, the hicks at my high school would get into fights over whether Ford trucks were better than Chevy. They actually formed two rival gangs sporting opposing t-shirts, shouting insults at each other's vehicles. Differing preferences and opinions and practices are just a feature of this world that God made. You're going to have to drive something. You're going to have to eat Something. You're going to have to wear something. And inevitably, whatever you choose, somebody else is going to choose something different, and they're going to think their reasons are right and yours are wrong, and you think you're right and they're wrong. Wherever you find differences, you can be sure that the potential for sin is enormous. Churches have been known to split. I I don't know if this is real or if we just always use this as the example. Over the color of the carpet... Not because carpet is that important, but because human hearts are just that sinful. It just doesn't matter what the stuff is in the world. The sin in our hearts can use anything and make it into a big thing. One of the most important questions in the church is how Christians should deal with differences between one another. How do we get along? How do we maintain unity? How do we live in fellowship with one another when we differ on so many things, so many of our practices and our thoughts and our preferences, and on and on. The the very unity of the church is at stake, and that's what is addressed for us in God's Word in Romans 14, 1 through 12. And so I want to invite you, if you're physically able to stand with me, we stand because we have high regard for God's Word. We read this like no other book. This is authoritative. It is inerrant. It is sufficient to address all that we need God to address in us. And so we give our fullest attention. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person 
esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Would you bless the hearing and the believing and the preaching of your word and would your Holy Spirit cause this word to do more in us than we could imagine possible based on this time that we have together. Father, would your spirit cause us to live and would you cause us, grant us by your grace to live in such harmony with one another that we would together with one voice glorify you in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I wanna try to sketch for you first what seems to be going on in Romans 14. The, the church in Rome was made up of Jewish Christians as well as Gentile or non-Jewish Christians. And a central theme in the book of Romans is how the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all nations and how it unites all nations. It's a gospel for all people. Romans 1.16, which is the theme of the entire letter to the church in Rome. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that theme carries throughout the entire letter, how the gospel applies to Jew and Gentile and how it unites them together into one people. And we could take our time to go through that from the very opening to the closing doxology and everything in between. The implications of the gospel on the relationship between Jews and Greeks within the church, that is a huge theme in Romans. And wherever you find people from different backgrounds, different cultures, you are bound to find differing practices, differing opinions. And if you've ever been in that kind of cross-cultural environment, inevitably, you look at people who have practices different than your own as a little bit weird. Not just, oh, that's different, more like, that's wrong, that's weird. Why do you do it that way? We do it this way. And, and those differences present threats to community to fellowship together, to unity in the church, and they present opportunities to sin. In Romans 14, Paul is addressing two such differences, very practical things. One has to do with food. The other has to do with the calendar. So diets and days. And regarding diets, I think the most likely explanation of what's going on here is that some of the Jewish Christians were eating only vegetables. And they were doing that, presumably, to adhere to the Old Testament dietary laws. They took that seriously. They wanted to 
live in that ritual purity of the Old Testament dietary restrictions. It's not that the Old Testament required vegetarianism. They were permitted to eat meat. But if they were Jewish Christians living in Rome and they couldn't find a butcher who butchered animals in a kosher way, then the safest thing was just to avoid all meat altogether. So apparently some in Rome are eating only vegetables. Gentile Christians, on the other hand, they were eating meat. And they believed that they were free to do so. That in the new covenant, God declared all foods are clean. And they, they no longer were restricted by Old Testament dietary laws. And they were right. Verse 5, Paul says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. And there he's probably again referring to Jewish Christians who were observing some of the Old Testament holidays the Jewish calendar, the weekly Sabbath, the, the new moon festivals, feasts, maybe days of prayer and fasting. And, and Paul's saying, so, so some people set aside these special days, and to an, another person, it's just another Tuesday. In fact, you know, today is Pentecost Sunday. Some churches, that's a big deal. They follow the church calendar very closely. And others, it's just another Sunday. As Paul explains, th- there's nothing inherently wrong with eating vegetables. And there's nothing inherently wrong with eating meat. And there's nothing wrong with setting aside certain days to feast or to fast, whatever the case may be. Paul is dealing here with non-moral, non-salvation issues. The NIV uses the phrase disputable matters in verse 1. These are matters where Christians hold different opinions. When it comes to moral issues, issues that God has forbidden or required, where God has spoken clearly in his word, there is no leeway at all. We just heard Paul say at the end of Romans 13, 13 verses 3 through 14, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When it comes to moral issues, he's not like, oh, that's your personal preference? Go ahead. You can make a little provision there. That's that's fine. Everybody differs on these things. No, make no provision for the flesh when it comes to moral issues that God has clearly spoken on. Likewise, when it comes to salvation issues, Paul has no tolerance for any doctrine or any practice that would undermine the good news that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. There is no tolerance for that. Listen to 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3, where Paul warns, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, if that doesn't get your attention, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And what are they teaching? They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So, it turns out, some approaches to food and diets really can be a deeply serious issue. If somebody is shifting their faith away from Christ alone, thinking that they are approved before God based on what they do or don't do, what they eat or don't eat. But in the church in Rome, it seems like genuine Christians who are really trusting in Jesus just had different practices when it came to their their diets. And it was an obstacle to community. That's what Paul is addressing here. And these weren't merely subjective differences like personal taste. I like chocolate, you like vanilla, it's all good. No, Paul straight up says in verse one, as for the one who is weak in faith. So we know what side of this issue he lands on. And then he says in verse two, the weak person eats only vegetables. 
So, so it is a matter of faith, and this person doesn't have enough confidence or assurance in their own heart and mind that they are permitted to eat these things. The one who eats meat, according to verse 2, does so because he believes he may eat anything. It's a matter of faith for him. He trusts God, and then he eats, and he's right. The weak person struggles to believe that. So so there is a strong and a weak. There, There is a right and a wrong on this issue, but that's not Paul's first concern, which is incredibly instructive to us. That's illuminating, right? Because when it comes to issues where there is a a right and a wrong, I've got good reasons and I am on the right side of this issue, our first inclination is to win the argument, prove our point, recruit people to our side. That's not Paul's first concern. The real problem is not the diets or the days. The problem is the hearts of these Christians in Rome on both sides of the issue. That's instructive. Their attitudes, their dispositions toward one another, that's Paul's concern here. Look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Again, verse 10, Paul asks, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? And he's using first person here again like he's pointing fingers. You. Why do you despise your brother? Those who believed they were free to eat anything and treat all days the same, they they were right, but they were dead wrong in how they were relating to their weaker brothers. They were wrong to despise those who were following more careful restrictions. The the word translated despise, it it means to look down on, to treat with contempt, to, to view somebody else as worth less. And this is always the temptation that faces those who feel more free in life, right? Just think of how you react when you see an Amish horse and buggy go by. Don't you chuckle a little bit? <laughs> that's, that's funny. That's just so old-fashioned and backwards. They, they really don't feel free to use electricity and drive motor vehicles. It's just kind of funny, right? You, you just laugh about it a little bit. You, you, you chuckle. Why, why would anybody feel that restricted? But the problem cuts both ways. Those who were more scrupulous about their diets and their days, they were guilty of passing judgment on their less restricted brothers. To to pass judgment is to condemn, to criticize, to find fault. And this is always the temptation that faces those who are following more strict limitations. So think about it like this. Let's say you start trying to watch how much sugar you consume. Do you also happen to start noticing how much sugar other people consume? And be honest, do you feel a little bit better about yourself than all those glucose gluttons? You're just trying to watch what you're eating for your health, for your sake, and you start noticing what everybody else is eating, which has nothing to do with your health or your weight. You just kind of think, hmm. That's it. That's how it works. Wherever you feel free, you're going to feel tempted to scoff at those who don't feel as free as you do, laugh at them. And wherever you're painstakingly following some rule, the temptation is going to be to condemn those who are not as careful as you are. And according to Romans 14, both of those attitudes are sinful. Both of those are out of sync with the gospel. Both of those are entirely unacceptable in Christians. Both of those are threats to the fellowship of believers in the church 
And either one of those attitudes is worse than being wrong about what foods you're actually free to eat. Both of those attitudes threaten the unity of the church, the body of Christ, and that's Paul's main concern. Verse, four, verse 1 in chapter 14 begins, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And this section now that Paul introduces here continues all the way through chapter 15, the middle of chapter 15. Listen to how it ends in verses 5 through 7 in chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that is, in line with, in sync with all that he is and all that he has done as your crucified and risen Savior, that together with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's like bookends on either side, like two pillars holding up this entire section. Welcome one another. Welcome one another. That is Paul's concern here, and everything he says in between is aimed at that, that Christians in local churches would live together in such God-glorifying harmony, unity, that God would be exalted, that the world would see the love of Christ on display. And to that end, Romans 14, 1 through 12, makes this claim that Jesus died and rose again to unify dissimilar people into a single God-honoring, neighbor-loving community. You get that? Jesus died for this. He gave his life to take people who are very different and would never otherwise join their lives together. He gave his life to join your lives together so that you would belong to a community that exalts God and loves one another. And, and that's supposed to inform how you deal with all of your non-moral differences between each other. The point of this text is to convince you never, ever, ever to let your opinions, your preferences, no matter how right you are, keep you from living in fellowship with Christians who differ from you. That's not easy. But in the time we have left, I want to show you from this text three ways to deal with such differences to the glory of God. Three ways. Imitate God, leave judgment to God, and thank God. First, imitate God. Look at the command in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then just a few verses later in verse 3, Paul gives the, the reason, the grounds, the basis for that instruction. Why are Christians to welcome one another? For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed that brother. And the logic is exactly the same when we come to the end, Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How are you supposed to welcome in the exact same way that Christ has welcomed you, the way that God relates to you in Christ has to inform how you relate to each other. That's it. And when you stop and think about it, did God welcome you because you were so much like him already? You had so much in common with him? You just got along so great? You agreed with him on everything? You were righteous and holy like him? No, no. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 10, and while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's when God welcomed you. God welcomes sinners. God welcomes enemies. He welcomes the unrighteous and the ignorant and the wandering and the worthless. He welcomes you. 
Are you amazed that God has welcomed you? And in welcoming you, not like he tolerates you, he puts up with you. No, he lavishes his love on you, Romans 5.5. 5. He gives you access to the very glory of God, Romans 5.2. He adopts you as his own and he makes you an heir of God, Romans 8.17. He has welcomed you in. And since God has welcomed you, then he calls you to imitate that same gracious disposition toward those who differ from you. Look, anybody in the world can find community with people who agree with them on everything, right? The world is full of that. You just start some affinity club. We're all into remote control cars or we're all into whatever it is, seasons of life, preferences, interests, hobbies. We get along naturally. This is just easy. That doesn't require the Spirit of God to like people who are like you. The flesh can do that. But Jesus died to make it possible for something supernatural to happen. Dissimilar people united to the glory of God. Diverse people exceedingly hospitable to one another in spite of all their differences, all of their reasons, all of their excuses and obstacles to getting along together. This is not easy. Different opinions can be major obstacles to actually sharing everyday life together. Think about it. How could Jews and Gentiles enjoy table fellowship together if they don't even agree on the menu plan? That's kind of difficult. If you've ever hosted a meal and you're trying to take into account lots of different dietary restrictions and whatever, you realize this is not easy. How could they gather together if they didn't even agree on when to gather? Which days are we supposed to be together? Well, Look at us here, all the ones who think this is an important day. Let's just keep doing this. This works well. Start a a little super spiritual club together. People really know what's going on. As you try to share your life together with other Christians, you will feel the strain and the discomfort and the challenge of this because we're not the same. So what do you do in those moments? You stop and, and you prayerfully meditate on how God has treated you. What is his disposition toward you. And then you ask him to help you treat others just like that. That kind of patience and grace. Welcome one another as God has welcomed you. Second, leave judgment to God. The positive command in this text is welcome one another. That's the practice to put on, but there is an attitude that you have to put off. A matter of the heart that has to be Set aside, Romans 14, 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. If you try to welcome others into your life without dealing with sinful attitudes that you might have toward them, it's gonna be a disaster, right? You could be going through the outward thing, like I'm, I'm trying to share my life with them, I'm inviting them into my home, but if you don't deal with your own attitudes, everybody's gonna know. Thankfully, the Spirit of God reveals here the antidote to sinful judgmentalism. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Paul Paul compares this to a, a boss and an employee, a master and a servant, and just says, where do you fit in that relationship? If this is Jesus, the master, and your brother is his servant, not yours, he doesn't really answer to you, does he? I think every one of us has had that coworker who wasn't the manager but always tried to act like the manager, like the, the Dwight Schrute of the office. 
Don't be that guy. Paul says, who do you think you are? Judgment is God's responsibility. That is a divine prerogative. God's the judge, not you. Nobody reports to you. So don't worry about it. You can trust God. You can leave all the judgment to the Lord. You can trust that he's good and he's righteous and he knows what he's doing. And Paul closes this section by elaborating on that same point, verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And he just levels the playing field. Every single one of us is going to stand before God and give an account. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. When you remember God is the judge and you're not, then you stay in your lane. And then you remember that actually you're also going to stand before God and give an account to him. So it's not your job to be supervising everybody else. It's just your job to give attention to your own responsibilities. Take care of yourself. How are you going to answer to God? And when you remember you yourself will stand before God and give an account, how can you think about that and not delight in mercy and not just be overwhelmingly grateful that God has been merciful to you? Verse four, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. Listen to these words. What a promise. And he will be upheld. Why? Because he's so strong in his faith? Because he's so right in his ways? No, because the Lord is able to make him stand. Just, you, I assume you also know how this goes. When, when you find yourself a little judgmental, don't you take a little bit of delight in seeing somebody else fall? Like, told you so. Proves me right. You were wrong. It just kind of feels a little, you, you feel justified, right? I knew, knew that was going to happen. That is not God's disposition. <laughs> He's not watching people like, no, oh, they're off and I just can't wait till they crash and burn. No, he's not going to let any who belong to him fall. He will uphold all who belong to him. The Lord is able to make him stand. If you stand, you don't stand because you're so smart. You don't stand because you're so right. You stand because God is making you stand. That's grace. That is God's dynamic power acting toward you. I mean, imagine if your salvation depended on scoring 100% on a doctrine and ethics and theology exam. Get to the end of life and you just have to take a test and get a perfect score. You, you would not stand a chance and yet God graciously promises to uphold you in spite of how wrong you are about so many things. And when you get to heaven, just think, how many more things will we see we were wrong about? And imagine the humility we will feel on that day when we see so clearly that God saved us not because of how right and moral and wise we were but because of how merciful he is. He's the judge, and he's merciful to you. It just changes your disposition, right? You're not like watching other people like, ah, God, just get them. Give them what they deserve. Because you don't pray that for yourself, do you? No, you pray, God, have mercy on me, please. So you start to pray that way for other people. If God is not only to not only able to uphold, but promises to make them stand, then that should be your disposition to 
all your brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm rooting for you. I, I want nothing more than to see you stand fast in Christ, grow strong in your faith. More than winning you over to my side of this argument, which is right, but I just want to see you stand. Finally, thank God. The reason Paul is okay with some people eating meat and other people eating vegetables, even though there is a right and a wrong, there is a strong and a weak on this issue, it's because what really matters in life is living all of life to the glory of God. Verses five through nine. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God, for none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You get Paul's central concern? The Lord. It's about the Lord. It's not about meat and vegetables. It's not about you and them. It's about the Lord. And for to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. This is the key to understanding how to live in this world and deal with differences between Christians. And I think it helps to start at the end and work backwards. Christ died and lived again for a reason. He accomplished something. With that death and resurrection, he became Lord of all, the dead and the living. And that means because Christ died for you, you belong to him, body and soul. Every breath you take, you are his. All of your breathing, all of your eating, all of your working and celebrating and recreating, all of it is for him. Look, our culture realizes, hey, people disagree on things, and that leads to conflict, and that's not a good thing, so let's solve the problem through relativism, which just says, there's no right or wrong, right? You do you. Whatever floats your boat. Potato, potato, it doesn't matter. Paul actually deals with conflict by saying, everything matters. Do fruit and vegetables matter? Absolutely. Because Christ is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of all of your eating. Don't forget that. Everything you do from your birth to your death, how you live, how you die, it's all to be done to the Lord. Get that. Your aim in life is not to get your brother to eat more meat. Your aim in life is to do all that you do for the glory of God. How do you do that? Verse 6, the one who eats meat eats in honor of the Lord since, here's how, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains from meat abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. How do you do all things to the glory of God? You thank him. You cultivate deep gratitude in your heart toward him. Paul makes the same point in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Give thanks to him in everything. See, see how different that is? You could minimize it all. Ah, it doesn't matter. Or you could say, oh no, it all matters. If you're going to eat vegetables, you better give deep gratitude to God for those carrots and peas. If you're going to eat meat, thank God with all your heart because that's really good stuff. Thank him. Give him thanks for all of it. That, that is the exact opposite of what idol worshipers do. Romans 1, 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's idolatry, to not honor God, not acknowledge God, not thank God for anything. Jesus died to have a people who do the exact opposite. Honor him and thank him in everything. So cultivate that gratitude toward the Lord. And rather than judging others for what they do or don't do, just focus on glorifying God in your life. That's the key. That's how you deal with differences. 
everybody's in a process in this. This is just so essential to how we do life together in community at Emmaus Road Church, recognizing like, there's a strong and there's a weak, and as people grow and mature in their view, their, their practices are going to change. That just nobody's helped by anybody getting uptight and persnickety about it. Nobody's moved forward in their maturity in Christ by your criticism. You know what does have an effect on people? Your joy, your humility, your patience, your gratitude, your love for one another. What matters more than being right is being joyful and generous toward those with whom you disagree while you thank God in everything. Verse 6, the strong eat meat to the glory of God since they give thanks for the meat. The weak, they abstain, they also give thanks. They're thanking God. And notice, they're not thanking God that they don't eat meat. They're thanking God for the vegetables. That's really, really important. Our culture is full of people who are on all these fad interests and things, and it's all defined by what they don't do, what product is not present in the things that they buy, right? All the things they leave out. So an easy way to recognize if you're sinning in your opinions is when you're more mindful of what you're not partaking in. Oh, I don't, I don't touch those ingredients. No, give thanks for, to God for what you are eating. Be more mindful of what you are consuming, that that's a gift from God. And if it's non-GMO, cage-free, nut-free, dairy-free, BPA-free, sugar-free, fine. Don't thank God for all that. Thank God for what it is. For the eggs, not for the lack of cages. And be careful that you don't start thinking you love God more than others for all the things you avoid in life. Or that God's somehow more impressed by those things. He's glorified when you acknowledge Him as the Lord of everything and you give thanks to him for it all. This is so crucial. We, in this world God made, you're going to make choices. The issues look different today slightly than they did in first century Rome. Although food and diets, this has always been a big deal for people. People always care so much about what they eat and think God does too. And it can be a huge obstacle to life in community. But in our days, methods of education, healthcare choices, childbirth options, where you shop, what stores you do patronize and don't. All of those can be contentious things between Christians. Paul says, verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Scripture does not require you to be unopinionated. That would be impossible. Scripture does not require you to think that you're wrong. That would also be impossible. Whatever you're going to choose, you're going to have reasons for choosing it, and you should think that those are good reasons for doing so. You should use the mind God gave you to make those choices. But Scripture does require you to love those you disagree with and to do it all for the glory of God. Maintaining unity in the church matters more. It just matters more than being right. Jesus died and rose again to unify all of us together under his lordship. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord Jesus crucified and risen King, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of meat and vegetables, Lord of the rich and the poor, Lord of the day and night, of all things, all things belong to you. Would you grant to us to live in such harmony with one another that together with one voice we magnify you. May the world see that and be drawn to you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.